Thank you, Carl. Good morning, Tara. If you are the oldest sibling in your family, please raise your hand. Oh, there's a lot of us. All right. If you are the baby, raise your hand. A lot of babies. And then middle children, like myself. I'm going to resist the temptation to talk about why middle children are the best. That's not what this message is about, but we know it, right? So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this one, but has there ever been a time in your life if you are the oldest, middle, youngest, only child, have you ever thought to yourself, I wish I had an older sibling <laughs> that cared for me, that valued me, paves the way for me, and is there for me? Now, growing up, my family would often have meals together around the table for dinner. And I can't remember a single time that one of the siblings, including myself, ever said to another sibling, you know, in between Brussels sprouts, I'm really glad you're part of this family. And I care for you, and I value you, and, and I'm glad you're here, and I'm just, I'm just excited to be your brother or your sister. I can't remember a single time where any of us said something like that to each other around the dinner table. Now, even though we didn't say it, and even though decently often our actions didn't show it, there was an underlying given assumption that we belonged, that we cared for each other, and that we were glad that we were part of the family. It was assumed. There's a quote uh, from an article called Jesus, Our True Brother by Andrew Prideau. It's a French name. I might have gotten that right. You can correct me later. Okay, nailed it. Uh, Andrew Prideau, Isabel's got me. He said this, There can be something truly wonderful in the closeness we can share in family life. It's something that's deep and profound, often left unspoken until an awkward speech at a wedding or a birthday party, but nevertheless understood and naturally shared. It's an experience of comfort, safety, acceptance, and belonging. Whether you currently or were part of a family that's either, that either has negative or positive impact on your life, I want to tell you something that is true. God is setting the table for his family that he has been preparing for a very long time, not because he has to, but because he wants to. And believe it or not, you are invited to the table, to the family that God is preparing. You're invited. And many of us, I would venture to say all of us, at least at some point in our lives, have had that thought, man, I wish I had that older sibling that cared for me, that valued me, that wants me, that paves the way for me. And we find in our text today, you do. <laughs> and his name is Jesus. So a little bit of background, we're going through the, the letter, the sermon, the word of exhortation, it's called in Hebrews 13, of Hebrews. And the point of this message, this exhortation, is to exhort the Jewish believers in the first century, mid-first century, to not revert back, don't give in to the temptation of reverting back to the old ways, to the old lifestyle, to what would have been easier at the time. 
but instead to push forward in faith in Christ, not to revert back to Judaism under pressure to do so, many of which had already lost their homes under previous persecution, and they were facing it, and it was just going to get worse around the corner. And this speaker, the author, exhorts the people, press forward, Jesus is worth it. And here's the point of the whole, what we're talking about in this whole letter and message, Jesus is better, so don't give up. Keep pursuing, keep believing. He is worth it. Jesus is better. They needed to hear that message, and I would easily say for all of us, we need that reminder, that exhortation continually throughout our lives as well. So far in chapter one and beginning through chapter two, we have seen that Jesus is better. He's the better messenger. He's infinitely the better messenger. God would send human messengers, the prophets, spiritual messengers, the angels as part of the old covenant, and Jesus has been presented in chapter one as infinitely superior. The divinity of Jesus is lifted high in chapter one of Hebrews. He is the atoning sacrifice of the sins of the world. He is the appointed heir of all things. He's a member of the Trinity. He's God. And he's the agent and sustainer of all creation. So listen to his voice. This is the messenger of God, God himself. The divinity of Christ is emphasized in chapter one, without any doubt. And then we get into chapter two, and it begins with this warning. And the warning, as we talked a few weeks ago, was essentially this. There is no such thing as standing still in the Christian faith. It's just, you're not. You're either going towards God or you are drifting away. There is no such thing as standing still. If you want a parallel passage that spells that out very clearly, I would encourage you to check out 2 Peter chapter 1, where he talks about if we're not growing in some of these areas, we are blind, we are, we are falling away from him. There's no such thing as standing still. So this warning is given. There's several more warnings to come. And then we get into the rest of chapter 2, and rather than the divinity of Christ emphasized, we're starting to see his humanity emphasized. And both are vitally crucial for what he came to do for us. The gospel, the God-man who came, lived, and died for us. Last week we saw quotes from Psalm 8 taken in the passage, emphasizing Christ's humanity. For a little while, Psalm 8 says, he was made lower than the angels. Why? Because in order to deliver us out of our mess, as we heard last week, we created the mess. We can't fix it ourselves. Jesus came for a little while, lower than the angels, to deliver us out of the mess we can't deliver ourselves from. And then today, his humanity is still set forth very clearly. And we take a look at this passage, at an analogy of Christ's relationship with his people, one that I know I haven't thought as much about as some of the other ways he describes his relationship with us and God's relationship with us. He describes it as an older brother. Here's the main idea for the passage, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. God is making a family through Jesus. God is making a family through Jesus. We first see in verses 10 through 11 this plan of God to create a family. And then next in verses 11 through 13, we see our proud older brother. And at the end of the passage, it talks about how our proud older brother gets us into the family of God, the pioneer of our salvation, verses 14 through 18. God is making a family through Jesus, 
the plan of God to create a family. Then we're going to look at our older brother and how he gets us into the family, the pioneer of our salvation. First, the plan of God to create a family. If you look at verses 10 through 11, in these two verses, we see two things. The creator of everything and the constructor of one family. He's the creator of everything. Verse 10. He for whom and by whom all things exist. Who's that talking about? God, right? He is the one who created and owns everything. It's not a surprise. There's multiple places in scripture that say essentially the same thing. Romans 11 talks about how for from him and through him and to him are all things. In Proverbs 16, it says the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. We're not going to get into that today. In Isaiah 43, talking about Israel, he says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. God has made everything. God owns everything. And we could stop here for a little while and consider the power of God to do that, the creativity, the diversity of God and all that he's made. But instead, I want to I think for a minute and reflect on the question that all of us have asked, that if you're stargazing with some friends, the inevitable question, why are we here? <laughs> right? Looking up at the vast universe. What's the purpose of my life? What's the point of it all? A question we've all thought about. There is a clear biblical response to that. I think you could answer that in a number of ways, but there's a clear biblical answer that we see in this passage, which is this. What's the point of your life? Well, well, friend, you were made from God, through God, and for God. We were made for him. As we're going through Hebrews 1 and 2, maybe you've noticed the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have all been mentioned in some way their relationship with one another, some of the ways in which their roles play out. One way you could say this is that we were made from God the Father, through God the Son, and the only reason we can know that and believe that is because the Holy Spirit of God makes that known to us, brings it deep in our heart and soul to believe it and to live it out and to live a life of glory to God. What's the point of my life? I'm made from God, for God, to God. He's the creator of everything, including us. But what is he doing in all this vast creation? The answer is given in the rest of verse 10. He's constructing a family. Look again at verse 10. He for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The one who's made everything, what is he up to? He is constructing a family. He's bringing many sons to glory. Now, I have to say here, I, I agree with a lot of the commentators saying, the author, the speaker, still very much has Psalm 8 in mind as he's talking about bringing many sons to glory. Remember last week, Psalm 8. What is man that you were mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. 
When the the author of Psalm 8 considered the, the stars and the sun and the moon and how God put those up there with his fingers, the vastness of God, the greatness of God, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. What is man? What, who am I? Who are we that you would care, that you would even think about us? But as Psalm 8 goes on, you have set your glory above the heavens, and then immediately in verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength. In all that God has made in his vast creation, all his power and creativity and wonder of God, that he would care about people, even the really little ones. <laughs> out of infants you have established strength. It reminded me, I think I've shared this once before, I'm getting to the point where I'm forgetting what I've shared and have not shared, but if I did, it was like three years ago, so if you remember it, that's great. (laughs) I was thinking about when I was pretty young, my family would occasionally go to the beach, occasionally because my dad doesn't like the beach, my mom does, it would be a fight to get him there, Um, but we would go occasionally. And I remember it was a pretty stressful week that week, and, and they were looking forward, especially my mom, to get to the beach and to set up the chairs, right, and to just relax. We're not as much the water people as much as just hang out on the beach, throw a frisbee around. We get there, my parents set up their chairs towards the water. Again, I was pretty young, but I remember this pretty well. It stuck out. And we get there, the chairs are set up towards the water, and some of my siblings and I start throwing a frisbee around in the sand behind them. And I remember, and I was a pretty astute kid, I guess, at this, this memory, I remember looking, and almost immediately, my parents switched their chairs from the beautiful ocean water, the view, all of it, turned the chairs around to look at us playing in the sand. And I remember thinking, my astute little you know, nine-year-old self or whatever, you're with us all week. Why do you care? Like, look at the ocean. This is why we came. And yet... They wanted to know what we were doing. God in his vast, wonderful, immense, awe-inspiring creation, all of it, his beach chair is towards his people. His throne is towards his people. He's constructing a family. What is he doing in this vast creation? He's making a family. Verse 10, he's bringing many sons to glory. Now I say this and I'm thinking, some of you may be annoyed. Why doesn't he say, why doesn't he say daughters here? Like why does it have, is, he, is God sexist? No. It's the same, he's, he calls the church the bride of Christ. The guys have to deal with that, okay? So at times you've got to deal with this son's language, bride language. There is a reason for that. He's bringing many sons to glory. That is men and women who have confessed their sins and believe in Jesus. He's making us more like himself and he's leading us to glory. What glory? I think he still has Psalm 8 in mind. The glory of proper dominion over God's creation, right? What Psalm 8 is about. Talking both about the greatness of mankind, but also our smallness, our insignificance. The greatness of mankind, we are made in God's image. God made us to have dominion over this world that he has made, to steward it, to rule over it. And when we look around, do we see people having dominion over the world? In some ways, sure. We're made in God's image. We're creating order out of disorder. We do it in some way every single day. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is we lost the right to be 
stewards of this world, to be rulers over the world that God has made, vice-regents, representatives of God at the fall. It's heading towards death, just like we are, unless God does something about it. And fortunately, he is. (laughs) He's restoring this world and his people. There's a restored glory coming, a new heavens, a new earth. But for that to happen, not us, he had to do something. And thank God he did. Look again at verse 10. He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Can we talk about that last part? The founder of their salvation. That word founder could mean originator, initiator, champion, pioneer. The idea is, according to the New American Commentary, the founder is a leader who stands at the head of a group and opens the way for others to follow. That's the idea. Jesus as the leader, the head, the originator of this salvation, who opens the way for others to follow, who can lead his people to salvation, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Pause, wait a second. Jesus was made perfect? That sounds, you know, my Bible spidey senses are going off. That doesn't sound like something that we're supposed to say. What does that mean? It has nothing to do with morality. It's not saying that Jesus was made into a perfect moral person. So what is the author, the speaker, trying to say here? The word perfect means complete, adequate, effective. When you read through the passage, you see exactly what he's talking about in regards of Jesus being made as the founder of our salvation, how he suffered with us in order to qualify, be qualified, made effective, adequate, complete as our representative. He is our high priest, the one who identifies with us and represents us. He suffered as a man in order to suffer for man. He became our perfect high priest. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He became just like us to represent us, to live and die for us in order to bring us home. And it says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's saying that Jesus, the one who's making us like himself has the same father the same family as we do he's bringing us home to the family of God it literally says in verse 11 he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one it's giving the idea of this one family And that's why we see in verses 11 through 13, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He is welcoming us into the family of God. So we talked a little bit about God's plan to create a family. Now let's take a look at our proud older brother and then how he gets us into that family. Our proud older brother, verses 11 through 13, is Jesus. Verse 11, that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Brothers. Now, I think about my relationship with God in some of the ways that he tells me to, that I've analogies, descriptions of relationships. How does he define, how does he describe our relationship with him, with God, with Christ? Things like disciple, right? 
learner. What are some of the other ways he says our relationship with him is like? Any ideas? Biblical ones? Like, what does he say? Where his disciples... <laughs> sheep? Yep, we're sheep. Absolutely. Desperately in need of his help. I'll give you some. We are his spouse, the bride of Christ. We are his friends. We are friends of God. We are children of God. These are some of the ways that he describes his relationship with us. And I've thought quite a bit about a lot of those. I haven't thought too much about this one. Christ as our older brother. What does that mean? Where else does he talk about that? What can shed some light about what that means? Now, there are places in scripture that overtly, like here, describe Christ's relationship with his people as their older brother. There are also a few places that give hints, if you will, or whispers as Christ, as our older brother. I want to give you one example of one of the hints of it. It's in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. Let me give you a quick summary. Most of you probably know this story of the prodigal son. You have two sons, right? And they're, they're at home living with their father. And one of the sons, the younger one, says to his dad, essentially, hey, you're not dead yet, but I want your money. So can you give me my share, my inheritance, half of it, before you die so I can go do what I want? And amazingly, the dad says, sure, here you go. Gives him half of all that he owns. And what does the younger son do? He goes off, spends it prodigally, pun intended, on himself, right? Wastes it away, selfishly. Gives, And at the end of all that, he's got no money. He's working in a pigsty, and he's thinking to himself, man, I'd be better off if I went home. I'll come up with this elaborate speech. I know my dad won't see me as a son anymore, but just get me back as a servant. I'll work for you. I'll have better food and shelter than I do now. So he gets this speech ready, and he starts going home. And before he gets there, his dad sees him. And what does the dad do? He runs to him. Would have been shameful for a father to run. Doesn't care. Dad runs out, embraces him, not as a servant, but as a son, and throws a party for him. And meanwhile, older brother at home can't believe it. Are you kidding me, Dad? I've been here this whole time. What kind of party are you throwing for me? We should be ashamed of him and what he did. And you're welcoming him back and throwing this elaborate party? Ashamed. Now, a lot of times we hear that story and we are told correctly, look, the father is like God who will pursue us, who wants us, who embraces us, who celebrates us. Yes, yes, yes. Or we're told, think about the prodigal son. That's us. We're the ones who have wasted our lives, turned away from God, who don't deserve it, but are accepted back. True, true, true. Both of those are very true. But the point of the story, why Jesus is telling it, is because he's talking to these Pharisees who are acting a whole lot like that older brother, who are looking down on, sneering at, embarrassed at, all these other people that seem to not be faithful to God, not representing God the way they're supposed to. They have it all together. And they're ashamed of those who don't. And Jesus is pointing at them and saying, you're getting it wrong. And the whisper here in the story is, Jesus, our older brother, doesn't stay in the mansion back home. He goes out and pursues us. He's not like the older brother in that story. He left heaven. He left glory to come get us and bring us home, our proud older brother. 
celebrating along with the Father. There are some hints, whispers of Christ as our older brother in Scripture. There's also some overt examples, such as Jesus in the Gospels, when he says, who are those who are my brothers and my sisters but those who do the will of God? He's our brother. Or in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, he says to Mary, go tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Brothers. Or Romans 8, 29, verse 29, very clear example. Jesus, as our older brother, unashamed, proud. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his family, his brothers, his sisters. So question for us, are we ashamed to call him Lord? You can really easily right now say, no, I am not. But how about when you're around X group of people? Is it the same there? Are you consistent in that way? Unashamed of your God? Unashamed of Christ and what he's done? Unashamed of the gospel? Are we unashamed of him? He is proud and unashamed of us. Verse 11, that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. I'm not going to spend much time on this. I didn't dig too deeply into these verses, but in reading them, the, essentially what he's saying in quoting some of the Psalms and Isaiah chapter 8, is that Jesus is boasting in his siblings, if you will, in his brothers and his sisters. For all those who belong to God, he's unashamed, he boasts in us. And when it says, and again, I will put my trust in him, he's showing his siblings the example of the kind of life he wants us to live, one of faith in God, a model, an example. Is Jesus Just an example and a model for us? No, he's our Lord and our Savior, absolutely. But he's not less than a model and an example. We can look to our older brother who lived a life of faith in God and say, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. Let me quote Andrew Prudeau from Jesus, Our True Older Brother, Gospel Coalition article one more time. He says, we are caught up into the bigger love story that lies at the heart of the universe. The love of God the Father for his Son through the Spirit to the glory of God. And we really are now part of that story. We are partakers of the divine love and co-heirs in his glory. We have a permanent place at his family table. And the reason that's true is because of our proud older brother who makes that a reality who invites us and more than invites us, carries us to the table of God. It's because of Christ, our older brother. And he got us there and he got us there as we see in the story the only way he could with scars. He's the pioneer of our salvation, verses 14 through 18. Here's what we see in this last section. As the pioneer of our salvation, he lived for us, he died for us, And he continues to live for us. We see in these verses, 14 to 18, Jesus is presented as the pioneer of our salvation who defeats all of our enemies, 
paves the way for us through this jungle of a world of sin and confusion and pain, and then as our merciful high priest helps us in all of our trials and struggles. He's the pioneer of our salvation, who first lived for us in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. God the Son became human, that's flesh and blood, in order to help flesh and blood humans. He didn't come in the form of an angel to help angels. He came as a person, taking on human nature in order to help people, humans. And he is the only human who never, not once, gave in to the temptations to turn away from God, who gave in to the temptations of the devil of power or of shortcuts or of unbelief. He gave his life fully as a flesh and blood human being to God. And he gives us that perfect record of a life to us. He he gives it to us. It brings Ephesians 5, a whole new insight for me. Ephesians 5 says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. See how he cares for us. He would go so far as to live a spotless, flawless, perfect life and give us credit for it. (laughs) Incredible. He lived for us. And then verses 14 through 17, there is so much packed in these verses. He died for us. There it is. There's the simple point. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It's through death that Christ defeats death. And the one it says here who has power of death. Time out for the second time in the message. Wait a second. That doesn't sound right either. It says here that the devil has power over death. I thought that only God has the final authority over life and of death. Right? It says it everywhere. Here's some examples of that. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. God is the author of life and of death. He has final authority and power over life and death. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. God has final authority and power over life and over death. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. God has the final authority and power over life and over death. And according to the book of Job, the devil's on a leash and can only do what he is permitted to do. So then what kind of power over death is he talking about that the devil has? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 8 that Satan is the father of lies. There's a sense in which the devil, in tempting Adam and Eve, is the author of sin. And sin, as it says in Romans 6, the wages of that, what that earns and builds up is to death. And so in that sense, the devil has some power over death, and he uses death, as it says here in this passage, as a weapon in order to control those who are afraid of dying. And yet, God, 
delivers his people from death and even through his power, the fear of death. Isn't that incredible? That we don't need to be controlled by fear, manipulated by the enemy any longer. He has been disarmed and will be finally and fully destroyed along with death, the last enemy of God, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So, our older brother lived for us. He died for us, verses 14 through 17. And he lives for us today, now. He intercedes, but not before, as it says in verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, there is so much more coming about Jesus as our high priest. And so I'm going to be very brief here because I'm telling you, there is a lot coming on that topic of the priesthood, of the Levitical system as Jesus as our high priest in four or so chapters of Hebrews. Pray for me as I try to figure out how to navigate that well. (laughs) So let me be brief here. As Jesus, our high priest, he represents us. He identifies with us. And he was made the perfect or adequate representative of us as our high priest. And as the one who represents us, fully human, he, as it says here, makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, this kind of intimidating Bible word, it means this. To turn away or to satisfy wrath by an offering. Propitiation means to turn away or to satisfy wrath by an offering. So the just, right wrath of God towards people just like us who have turned away from God, who have hurt ourselves and others and this world, who have disregarded what God has created us to be and fallen from him. God's wrath aimed at us. What does Jesus do? What does our older brother do? He can't just get rid of it. That would make God unjust, unholy, unrighteous, not the kind of judge that anyone would want. He's fair and perfect. And so what does Jesus, our older brother, do? He moves the target away from me who deserves it, who deserves to pay for all of the mistakes I've made before a holy and just judge, and our older brother stands in front of us. And he takes the wrath, the righteous, perfect wrath of God. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become right with God. He doesn't cancel it, he absorbs it. That's what he does. He lived for us, he died for us, and then verse 18 continues to live for us. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The New American Commentary says, he suffered the risks and vulnerabilities of human existence, and because of this, we can identify with the God who identifies with us. And there's a whole lot more coming on this as well, so let me just say briefly, we can turn to him with every single struggle imaginable. If you're going through any kind of struggle at all, 
and you think even for a minute God doesn't understand, you're wrong. Yes, he does. We can turn to him with all of our struggles because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Believe that. Turn to your older brother for help. Turn to Christ. I started by saying often at family meals uh, growing up, we would eat together, and I don't remember a single time, myself included, where any of us said, you know, between that bite of spaghetti, I really care for you, and I'm glad you're part of this family to another sibling, right? I'm here for you, I'm there for you, I value you, I want you. Never heard that. But it was assumed to some, to some degree, for sure. Can I, can I take a second and talk to the older siblings here for just a second? Specifically those who you're still, you're living at home with mom or dad or both, and your siblings. <laughs> Specifically to them, but not just to them. Some of what I'm about to say may be a little bit cringy, thinking if I was an older brother living at home with my siblings and the, some of these things I'm about to say might be a bit like a little bit cringy. But I'm going to say it anyways. Because you're not going to get the time back that you do right now. There will never again be a time in your life where you are rubbing shoulders with your younger siblings on a day-to-day kind of basis at home. You do not get this time back. So there's a couple things I want to say. And in praying about it and thinking about it, I think especially older siblings, I've heard the kind of sentiment of, I know I'm the oldest sibling, but I just, I wish I had an older sibling. Why do I have to be given the responsibility to kind of pave the way and care for the younger ones? Why couldn't I have the older sister, the older brother? And I hope you heard in this passage today that in a very real way, you do. What might your older sibling What might Jesus say to you in the time that you do have to be an older brother or sister in your family? What might he say? Here's a few things. Be patient with your younger siblings. Don't jump to mock them. Don't jump to exclude them. You can't invite them to everything but let them know that you want them to be part of your life. Not just through some actions or hints of it. Use your words. Say it. (laughs) Invite them. Do they know that you care and you want them? Don't be quick to blame them and and throw them under the bus. (laughs) In some ways, you can be like Christ, who absorbs, who takes some of that of the mistakes they make, and own it. And when you do mess up, maybe even tomorrow or next week, and you think, well, that didn't work what the pastor said. I'm still being like this to my younger siblings. Don't give up. It doesn't all change at once. As Christ makes us more like himself, and we represent him in a number of ways, including as we can as older siblings to younger ones, it's a process. And even in the ways that you mess up, be quick to apologize and point to all of our older brother. The impact we can have can be so big and lasting. Make it count. 
And for those of you who are thinking I'm not an older sibling living at home with younger ones to have this kind of impact, the church is so frequently described as a family of God. Paul says to Timothy, see the older brothers, the older, the older men, women, father figures, mother figures, brothers, sisters. I can guarantee you there are people in this church, in this community, that are hoping and wanting to have somebody, you perhaps, to be that kind of figure in their life. An older brother, an older sister, who reminds them and points them in some ways to Jesus, our older brother, who doesn't shy away from telling us that he cares for us. Our older brother, unlike the prodigal son in the parable, he's not ashamed of us. No, he's proud and he pursues us. And he's the older brother who brings us to the table, to the family of God, unworthy as we are. God has invited us to the table. God has invited us into his family. And for those of you who already know that and are part of the family, I know that's almost everyone. Let's look to Christ, our older brother. And for those of us who maybe have never accepted that invitation, let today be the day you simply say yes to Christ. Yes, I have fallen short, Lord. Yes, I have sinned. But I accept that free gift from you, Jesus, your life, your death. Be my Lord, be my Savior, forgive me. And thank you for inviting me into the family of God. Something that simple. And please don't leave without staying, praying with somebody, talking about that. We're here to do that. We're about to take communion, but I don't want to lose you quite yet. Um... I was reading through 2 Samuel chapter 9, seems like a random chapter, um, but there's a story of Mephibosheth. Anyone know that name? Mephibosheth was the, the grandson of King Saul and the son of Jonathan. And there's not a lot of facts about Mephibosheth other than the fact that we know he was lame in both of his feet. And we find out in that story that the king invited Mephibosheth to the table, to the royal table, consistently. And so you have this person who's unable, who is lame in both of his feet, is both invited and brought to the royal table. And I, reading that story just reminded, that's us. <laughs> as you're taking communion today and you hear those words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, would you be thinking about that invitation he's given to each one of us to his table? We cannot get there on, on our own. We are lame in both feet, both arms, back, neck, name it, spiritually dead, and we were brought to the table because of Christ, our older brother. Let's pray. God, we don't, we don't deserve it. We should not think that we have claimed or earned the right to be at your table, to be part of your family, a better family, even if we've had the best kind of family we could have ever asked for in this life, your family is better. And you have invited us, but that cost you. It brought scars along with it, Jesus, that you still have right now in your hands, your feet, and your side. 
But thank you, Lord Jesus, for wanting us, for coming to get us unashamed, living, dying, and interceding for us today. And Father, I pray, help us to be the sisters, the brothers that you call us to be to each other. And help us, Lord, in a new way see your relationship with us in the ways that you describe it. And I pray for new insight, new understanding of you as we consider Christ our older brother. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.